Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Coleman, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Anna von Rath about her new book, Afropolitan Encounters, Literature and Activism in London and Berlin, published by Peter Lang in the new series, Imagining Black Europe. Anna von Rath, herzlich willkommen. Welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you so much for the invitation. My pleasure. Anna, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, of course. So um, I'm currently based in Berlin. Um, and the past 10 years or so, I um, studied and worked at the University of Potsdam, which is about an hour from Berlin. Um, and the department that I was working for or that I studied at um, had a strong focus on uh, post-colonial studies and it also offered um, quite a lot of opportunities to travel, to go abroad, um, which um, I gladly took. So um, during these 10 years, I actually spent uh, quite a bit of time in uh, South Africa and also um, in the UK. These are the two places that might be relevant um, for the book that we will be talking about today. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so Afropolitan Encounters is set up as encounters with Afropolitan thinkers and activists. Could you tell us how you came to the topic and how you came to write the book? Yes. Um, so I guess in the beginning, there was a very broad question um, that interested me and still interests me and um, that got me motivated to do the research. And uh, that is, how do we, and here I mean all human beings, uh, with our manifest differences live together in this world? Um, so basically, I was interested in learning more about the ways in which people are able to connect. Um, and yes, this is a political question that involves me as a person, as a white German woman, as a researcher. But I think we will speak a bit more about um, positionality later. Um, I then ended up working on Afropolitanism because I had read and also enjoyed all of the famous novels like um, Americana, Open City, We Need New Names, and so on. Um, and these novels now only feature marginally in my book, but um, they got me interested in the concept. Um, Afropolitanism seemed to be an interesting buzzword um, that lots of uh, African creatives engaged with and um, yeah, who in their creative practices try to use it in productive ways. Um, and if you read my book, you will see that um, I look at Afropolitanism as an identity 
as an ethical stance, um, as a self-care practice, to give only some examples here now. Um, and I argue that these practices have in common that uh, they all strive towards some kind of um, Afropolitan micropolitics of everyday life. So in a way, um, these Afropolitan practices, they reach different audiences, they create um, varying communities, um, and these are sometimes rather elite, which is probably something that we will also talk about later. And sometimes um, they are more diverse, and some of these Afropolitan communities include white people as well. Um, but all of the Afropolitan practices that I analyze, they share some core values. And that is that um, Afropolitanism positions itself against racism and nationalism, and it kind of always seems to seek connection and solidarity. So I basically took Afropolitanism as an invitation to a dialogue um, yeah, about the categorization of people, but also about the borders um, between people. Thank you. That was a really great summary. And you t uh, touched on so many points already that we will pick up on. That's really great. I think a lot of the listeners might also know these more uh, famous books and will appreciate that, that they get to know some books that are not so well known and, of course, other practices that we will talk about. But yeah, let's start with the positionality. So we are both white women. And you're writing, we're now speaking about Black art and activism. You acknowledge your positionality in the book. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this position, the recognition of your position, and how it influences your research ethics, um, especially for this book? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the main questions that I had while um, writing this book and while doing uh, the, the research. And... Um, Well, I basically decided to frame my research as a series of encounters uh, with Afropolitan sites. And I also chose to work with uh, Francis Niamjo's notion of uh, convivial scholarship. Um, and, well, convivial scholarship privileges incompleteness. And it also encourages encounters that reach out to other incompleteness. And what I tried to do is that I wanted to move away from overprescription. Um, rather, I wanted to position myself more as a listener and a learner. And I was always looking for nuance. Um, And to avoid simplicity, I then uh, set out to read Afropolitan theories, but also other theories, including both um, supporters and critics of Afropolitanism. I read Afropolitan literature extensively, um, and I also read a wide range of other cultural texts um, alongside each other. And um, yeah, these different materials uh, provided me um, yeah, with um, several different perspectives. And then an extension of the convivial notion um, of my research, I also met with people involved in Afropolitan practices, um, and I call it conversations over a drink, and I, I reference um, these uh, real-life encounters uh, in the text. Um, and I also always uh, try to make clear that I obviously organized my material according to my own research questions and um, that this book represents my perspective. Um, but uh, yeah, I emphasize um, that I try to be open-minded and to tackle the inherent power dynamics in the process of this work. Yeah, and I think we can really see when we are reading it, this process of learning and of listening. Um, and of course, there is an ethics of citation in that book as well. So you structure the book in three parts. The first part is called Emerging Afropolitanism, and it's about the theories. Um, then you have a part about London with two example chapters and about Berlin with two example chapters. So we'll start with the first part. Um, um, and 
very kind of broadly, can you introduce each of your main theorists and maybe specifically with similarities and differences between them? Okay, I will try to do my best. <laughs> um, well, so the first part, the theoretical part, is about the two texts, um, well, that kind of initiated the whole discussion of Afropolitanism. And um, so that is Taya Selassie's body of work, basically her short essay, Bye Bye Baba, or what is an Afropolitan, um, but I also touch upon her novel and her very famous TED talk. Um, and then the second uh, important thinker that um, I discuss extensively is Achille Mbembe, um, who wrote a very short essay titled Afropolitanism, and that appeared in um, the, the catalog for an art exhibition, um, Africa Remix, that um, taught the world a couple of years ago. Um, and so after these two thinkers uh, published their very short essays in, I think, around 2005 and 2007, um, yeah, the, the whole idea of Afropolitanism went viral. It uh, received a lot of uh, criticism, actually, uh, from academics, um, but there were lots of uh, creatives, musicians, writers, um, artists who willingly um, identified with the concept and then used it in their own way. And um, yeah, as you say, I first um, discussed their works in depth. Um, so Selassie basically introduces Afropolitanism as an identity. Um, according to her, it's a diaspora concept, um, and she builds on some aspects of earlier theoretical work, such as um, Paul Gilroy, Stuart Hall, and Brent Hayes Edwards. Um, and her Afropolitans are basically an elite contemporary African diaspora, people who are mostly well-educated, who travel voluntarily. And um, she asserts that these people have to negotiate um, the three dimensions, race, nation, culture, um, in order to find their own position in the world. And... In this process of negotiation, um, she also says that um, Afropolitans usually have to um, yeah, decide whether they want to conform to the local norms or to subvert them. Um, and all of this can lead to um, an interest or a willingness to complicate Africa, that is to say, to work against um, stereotypical notions um, of Africa and Africans. Um, and then Atir Mbembe, on the other hand, um, he kind of introduces Afropolitanism as an ethical stance toward the world. Um, and he focuses much more on the African continent uh, itself. And um, he introduces Afropolitanism as an alternative to Pan-Africanism and to African nationalism because he really wants to think beyond the national and the racial. And according to him, everybody who participates in producing African art and culture can be Afropolitan. And in that chapter, um, I also discuss the exhibitions at the Zeitz Museum of uh, Modern African Art in Cape Town um, and um, read it basically as an example of Afropolitanism. And uh, there are people uh, representing African art who have a white US American uh, position. So that's very interesting to, to think about how he gets there. Um, and to uh, Mbembe's theory, mobility is essential as it is for Selassie, but uh, he focuses more on the mobility to the African continent, um, across the African continent, um, and also a little bit um, uh, on the mobility away from it, but it's not necessarily only the um, African diaspora that interests him. And 
Well, basically what he proposes is that uh, when practicing Afropolitanism, um, people practice uh, a certain kind of broad-mindedness and um, yeah, they, they live in an ethical way, so to say. Yeah, I, I really found it fascinating to think about when we think African diaspora, we are so often think about the African diaspora in Europe or North America, but to think also about the many other diasporic communities within Africa was, was really, really interesting, I thought. Um, so Afropolitanism is, of course, a combination of Africa and cosmopolitanism. And when we think of cosmopolitanism, something I know a little more about than Afropolitanism, uh, we often think of a privileged kind of transnationalism, one in which the tra traveler doesn't have to consider borders, where mobility is unimpeded. And following Selassie, this seems to be true for her definition of Afropolitanism as well. But then in the chapter, I was struck by a sentence, um, and that is, they have to prove that Africans can be cosmopolitans. And that speaks to the anxiety of Afropolitan characters um, that white cosmopolitan characters rarely exhibit. So can we talk a little bit about this anxiety that you trace in Selassie's novel, Ghana Must Go? And is this where you think Afropolitanism differs from cosmopolitanism? So... We have kind of privileged people, but they also experience anti-Black racism and exclusion in the white societies. That was a long question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I hope I will do justice to it. Um, so, yes, um, especially I think in, in uh, Thay Selassie's novel, Ghana Must Go, uh, we see how the characters she depicts, um, they travel between the US and the UK, Nigeria and Ghana, and it's mostly for the education, for work, or um, to visit family. Um, and uh, all of the characters seem to be overachievers. They're enroll enrolled in Ivy League universities um, or already settled in um, prestigious professions. But uh, then we also see that all of the characters constantly struggle um, and, and they seem to yeah have difficulties um to to find their place in the world um and for this anxiety there seem to be uh, the reason behind that seem to be several several things so on the one hand um the the younger generation so so that they know little about um the African continent, or um, they they know little about their parents' pasts, who who keep it to themselves. And um, on the other hand, they are expected um, in the white majority societies in which they live for uh, the most part of their life um, that uh, yeah they somehow represent Africa and uh, Africans, and so. Um, yeah, that that is difficult for them, and that's that's also why why Selassie says, yeah, we we have to define for ourselves what race means, what culture means, um, and uh, what uh, nation means, basically. Um, and then she, um, in the novel, she also shows how all of the characters go through their individual process of making sense of the. African part of their identity, and um, these turn to be out uh, very uh, different things that are basically rather thin <laughs> threads of connections. So for, for one of the characters, it's uh, traveling to Africa for the first time to, to a small town in uh, Ghana, a, a small village in Ghana, and then... Um, dancing the traditional guard dances with her relatives that she meets for the first time. Um, and somehow that gives her a feeling of um, coming to terms with who she is. And for each of the characters, it, it's, it's, it's a different story. And I think this is also what, what Taya Selassie wants to emphasize with her Afropolitanism, that um, it's different for everybody, but still people in the diaspora, um, African people in the diaspora, they can connect because they share um, 
the gaps in their own family histories and um, the sometimes um, yeah uh, the the lack of knowledge uh, about the past of their of their family members. Yeah, and we will get back to that later as well with another novel. Um, but uh, for now, I was also really interested in this. Okay, so for Selassie, Afropolitanism is really about black people in G8 cities, so global north cities. Um, and then for Mbembe, um, we're moving it to the continent of Africa and especially the urban areas, African cities, which by itself already kind of counters some stereotypes people might have about Africa. Um, so what is an Afropolitan place or city in his definition? Well, in his definition, uh, so, so he calls Johannesburg uh, the Afropolitan city per excellence, and it's basically a place where uh, people from uh, all over the African continent travel to because they seek opportunities but then also people from all over the world uh, go there as well um, and it's it's basically a place where um, yeah like different kinds of people come together um, and therefore create something new um, he says that what automatically happens is that people then start uh, mixing um, their own uh, cultural habits, so to say, um, and therefore produce new new ways of being. Um, and that's, yeah, that's African cities to him. Okay. Yeah. And you say that he doesn't really include whether these cities could be outside of Africa. Um, but you you're kind of thinking about that too, right? Whether this Afropolitan hub could be elsewhere um, in his theory. And you're writing about London and Berlin specifically, um, but just as a, as a glimpse into that, would you say that he would be saying, yes, Afropolitan cities can be outside of Africa? Mm, that's difficult to say for me. I, I think Selassie would definitely say yes. And that was also one of the reasons why I chose to work with um, London and uh, Berlin. Um, because Selassie uh, used to live in Berlin for a while when I started my research. Um, I think she was born in London or at least in the UK um, and mentions London in her essay, Bye Bye Baba or What is an Afropolitan? Um, and uh, Mbembe is definitely um, uh, a proponent of Afropolitanism as uh, um, as a concept, uh, an urban concept. But um, yeah, so I, I basically went with that idea to London and then to Berlin um, and tried to find out um, if there are um, according to his definition, people who create African art um, and culture, um, yeah, one can find these people um, in these cities too. Um, yeah, okay. but we would have we would have to ask him. <laughs> yes, yes, we should. <laughs> um, before we move to the examples, can you tell us a little bit about the criticism that you find that is leveled against Selassie or Mbembe themselves, or also what gaps you have found in their approaches? Yeah, so so one of the major critiques I, I already mentioned um, it's that. Uh, um, Afropolitanism is seen as quite uh, elitist um, and then also in the case of uh, Selassie um, some people call her a little bit too conformist um, there are um, several people like Emma Dabiri who says uh, Afropolitanism is not radical enough then there is uh, Marta Dwight um, who says she doesn't agree with privileging um, this bond with the African continent. Um, she would uh, rather want to create um, social justice movements in the city where she lives with other people living there. Um, and uh, yeah, then there's also um, this critique that um, it's a little bit neoliberal. <laughs> um, and we might uh, go into that later. Um, and then, yeah, both of them 
um, also seem to be overlooking uh, other aspects like uh, queerness or what does that mean for um, Afropolitan practices. But then I also always have to say that uh, both of their essays um, that kind of started the whole uh, discussion about Afropolitanism are very short. <laughs> so it's basically, uh, I don't know, five pages each. Right. And of course, you are adding to that with looking exactly at those aspects. Uh, so before we started recording, we actually talked about highlighting one chapter each in the section on London and Berlin. But of course, all chapters are so rich. So I would have missed, be amiss to not ask at least one question about the other chapters. So chapter three is about... Um, Brian Chikwaba's novel Harare North, um, and he examines less privileged Afropolitans. You come to the conclusion in this chapter that while this novel is indeed Afropolitan, it's also pessimistic about it. Um, in your reading, the novel contributes to Afropolitanism by demonstrating what failed Afropolitanism may look like. And can you explain in what ways these characters in a novel fail and what this adds to your understanding of the concept um yes uh, so uh, this novel has been discussed by other scholars also um uh, when when they wanted to talk about afropolitanism and they came to different conclusions i have to say here um so in my reading um basically um Yeah, the 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 protagonist and the narrator of the story, he is a refugee. He had to flee from Zimbabwe to uh, London because he got in trouble. Um, and he he never really wanted to travel, so it's not uh, voluntary. Um, and and then in London, he he really wants to just quickly earn money and uh, go back home. So there's no interest in, in getting to know the place, in adapting to the place, um, or in making a living there. It's um, just a means to an end. And, um, yeah, so he had to flee because uh, of the political situation in his home country, and then uh, he can't really make a life because of the... Um, official structures um, in uh, the play uh, in his destination. So basically, because he's not given a work permit, um, he ca he can't really uh, take a proper job. And then he does uh, he does some things to earn money, but he realizes that even. Uh, Yeah, even getting an apartment is impossible and he uh, ends up staying in a squat, uh, but he doesn't know that it is a squat. He pays rent to a fellow Zimbabwean. And so there's all of these restrictions that force him in a situation that he never asked for. Um, and I read... Um, into this novel that there is one moment uh, of Afropolitanism when uh, this character actually starts to uh, maneuver the new place, when he, um, when he realizes that he has to learn about um, the London way of life to survive and to get to where he wants to go. And at the same time, he always emphasizes that he doesn't want to um, that he doesn't want to lose his Africanness. So what his goal is is to create something new and this combination of um, Uh, of something um, that is influenced by his stay in London and, and this uh, African background. That's uh, how I would interpret Afropolitanism. Um, but, it, but he fails, as you already mentioned, uh, because of the structural restrictions that he experiences. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, thank you. In chapter four, um, I find the pairing particularly intriguing. Can you tell us about the two very different people um, that help you explore whether London is an Afropolitan hub and how fashion plays a role in your analysis? Yes, so in that chapter, um, I talk about real people and not characters in the novel. Um, and one of them is uh, also quite famous, I guess. It's uh, Mina Salami. She, um, she's the owner of the blog Miss Afropolitan. And uh, I think next to Tai Selassie and Achiran Bembe, one of the uh, most visible, visible supporters of the concept. Um, but I talk uh, mainly about one of her um, earlier works um, because she curated an Afropolitan fashion show at the Victoria and Albert Museum, and that was in 2011. So since then, her Afropolitanism has already um, developed, uh, but I particularly wanted to look at that fashion show. Um, and then there's uh, CT, a person whose uh, name uh, I will keep to myself uh, for uh, his own security, because he also, like the character in the book that we spoke about, um, he had to flee from Zimbabwe and um, lives in London now. Um, and he also doesn't have a work permit, uh, but he works as a bicycle messenger mainly. Um, and then uh, he came up with uh, several uh, side businesses. And one of them is uh, producing caps uh, from African wax print fabrics for um, fellow bicycle messengers. Um, yeah. And so that's the pair of them. <laughs> Yes, thank you. And I was really interested in um, how you talked about that wax print uh, fabric that you just mentioned, because it could be read as African, but isn't. So you interpret this as a reappropriation of an African signifier and an Afropolitan practice. Can you walk us through that argument? Yes. Um, so with... Uh, um, With the African wax print fabric, the story goes that um, it's actually something that the colonizers brought to the continent first. Um, and then um, it was established as um, yeah, something that uh, is African. And uh, so nowadays, whenever we, th we see these colorful fabrics, um, they are directly associated uh, with the African continent, um, but, but the history, as I say, is a little bit different. Um, but for CT, this was, uh, this, he also took it as, as an African signifier because he, he told me that it reminds him of home and of how um, like the, the women in um, his hometown dress um, and therefore, he, he just wanted to do something with uh, this kind of fabric. So for him, it definitely also speaks to um, yeah, his personal history. Um, and then also because he thought uh, bicycle messengers, as he explained to me, usually wear black. And he thought they would need a little bit of color. <laughs> and um, yeah, therefore, he created caps. Uh, that they can that they can wear, and I think what's also important uh, for this story is that um, he works. With, so he takes these uh, African wax print fabrics um, as something that reminds him of home, and then he works with. Um, tailors in London uh, who also have an African background um, and uh, he sells the caps to people he knows um, or in unlikely shops so he, he told me he would go to a head shop but he goes to um, like some of the do-it-yourself bicycle shops or people he knows and ask them if they could sell some of his caps there um, and basically what happens is that he becomes an intermediary between all of them and that he 
uses um, um, not only existing materials, but also existing infrastructures, um, and then kind of adds to them, um, making something new, creating something um, that is useful, and that also helps them to make a living. Yeah. Um, in your discussion of salamis, uh, Afropolitanism, um, I was really interested in that sense that she thinks of it as cosmopolitanism, but in a politicized manner. Um, and I was wondering, does this work for your definition and for the iterations that you have incorporated? So is bringing Africa in the into the discussion already political? <laughs> Um, that's a that's a yeah that's a difficult question but a good one. Um, so if we go back to uh, Mbemba's theory, uh, he also argues for making uh, making the African continent a force of its own. Um, so, so he also emphasizes that um, at the moment we need uh, we need Afropolitanism and it can't just be cosmopolitanism because uh, as it is now, uh, the African continent is not an equal player in the world and it needs to be not only in an economic sense, but also in a philosophical and, and political sense um, to become unequal to, to other forces in the world. And if I understand Salami correctly, she kind of tries to say uh, something similar, that um, cosmopolitanism in itself uh, is generally associated with um, white male uh, business travelers still, uh, although it has been um, yeah, diversifying over the past years. And there's not only Afropolitanism, but there are all kinds of cosmopolitanisms. Um, but they might also still be less visible, as is Afropolitanism, um, especially here in Germany. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, let's move to Germany. Um, yeah. And you start your Berlin section with the organization Afropolitan Berlin. In this chapter, you discuss the general whiteness of Berlin and Germany, the beginning of the Afro-German movement in the 1980s, and you come to the conclusion that Germany or Berlin specifically needs two types of Afropolitan spaces, safe or safer and brave spaces. How does the organization Afropolitan Berlin provide for both? Um, so, yes, um, it provides safer spaces because it's, um, it's an organization that has uh, lots of workshops or events uh, only for black people and people of color. Um, and, and so whatever happens there... Um, provides people with an opportunity to express themselves in a racism-free space, potentially. Um, but they also try to, I don't know, um, bridge <laughs> over to um, other people and to actually educate about racism, educate white people about racism, um, and therefore reach out. Um, yeah, and uh, I think... I think um it's it's doing less of that kind of work so it really focuses on the on the safer spaces um and they they follow up on different themes so in uh, that chapter i particularly talk about uh um their program of uh self care <laughs> Um, and and also uh, which builds up on the tradition of Audre Lorde who came to visit Berlin in the, when was it, 1980s really. Yeah, and so for anyone really interested in that history, there, it's also a really great overview of, of getting into the city um, with that chapter. So your last chapter, your last encounter is with Schwarzhund um, and their novel Biscaya. And Biscaya actually has the subtitle of an Afropolitan Berlin novel. So it's it's very clearly labeled that way. Um, their take of, on Afropolitanism is similar and different from the ones we discussed so far. Can you give us a theory, of, um, an overview of the theory and how it plays out in the novel before we touch on some other items? 
Yes, so maybe a little anecdote before I go into it. Um, when I <laughs> when I, I searched for Afropolitanism in Berlin, um, I, it was really hard to to find it or to find people who practice Afropolitanism. Um, and then I went to this queer book fair, a really small one in Berlin, um, and only because Schwarzgrund uh, put the subtitle Afropolitan Berlin Novel on their novel, um, uh, I, I realized that this might actually uh, be interesting for my research. So this all was a big coincidence and I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy that I found the novel. And um, so, well, Schwarzrund uh, presents an inherently intersectional Afropolitanism, um, which is interesting because that's something, as I said, um, Ashim Bembe and Thaïs Selassie, they, they mainly focus on uh, race uh, and uh, nation or nationality. Um, and then Schwarzrund includes um, age, uh, gender and sexu uh, sexuality. Um, yeah, and uh, the Afropolitan protagonist uh, of Biscaya of the novel is embedded in various positions um, of non-privilege in Berlin. Uh, which leads her to really question exclusive dominant structures, um, but also to undermine them and to search for more respectful ways of interactions. And um, what I found, found particularly interesting and also productive was that uh, the protagonist um, is in a learning process. So, so, um, also, the, the Afropolitanism uh, presented in that book really is a shift away from established norms and it's moving from conformity um, to subversion, which is quite similar maybe to um, the notion of uh, the, the Afropolitan notion of Selassie, but then maybe also um, a little bit more radical. So um, new forms of interacting um, are also immediately applied by the different uh, characters. Um, and yeah, uh, it's, it's um, basically a political strategy to, to claim space, to self-define um, and to demand recogni recognition for um, silenced voices. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, people begin talking about German-African relations, starting with official colonialism in the Kaiserreich. But Biscaya challenges this narrative by including a historical figure in the fictional narrative. Um, and would you tell us a little bit about this figure and what it signifies, especially in terms of a counter-narrative? Yeah, so um, in uh, in a foreword to the to the novel, Schwarzrund explains that they went to um, one of the Prussian castles that are around Berlin, um, and they saw a painting of um, a black German called Ahmed, um, and because. Uh, the, this the the history or the the story the life story of Ahmed uh, cannot be reconstructed. Um, he became a character in the novel, um, and in the novel he is a great grandparent of um, of the protagonist, um, and the story also. Um, presents him as someone who comes from an island. Uh, it's a <laughs> fictitious island. Um, it's called Biscaya, like the title of the novel. Um, and, well, there is uh, a bay of Biscay in, uh, I think, northern Spain, northern France. Um, but the island really is made up. Um, and so... It's in the novel, it's a colonized island, it's a colonized space, but it's also a space that uh, where the majority of people are black um, and there's a revolution happening, which is why lots of people um, have had to leave the island and are in Berlin. Um, 
Yeah, and it, it basically, the, this island presents um, a shared home base of black people and people of color that is located directly in Europe and is part of Europe, which is, I think, incredibly interesting. Yeah, it really uh, speaks to to so many facts, right? The one that um, many uh, diasporic people don't have much knowledge of the history of their ancestors because of enslavement and and other ways um, people were forced into mobility, um, and also it speaks to to that focus on nation or nationality, which which it really overcomes. So in that sense, I thought that this novel was maybe the most Afropolitan novel <laughs> that you discuss. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I also think it's um, it's probably because because the German context is so different and um, Tai Selassie's novel is uh, mostly set in the U.S., um and yeah i think there is uh i think i i also say this uh, in the book that um in germany i sometimes have the feeling that there is a bigger need or more urgency behind these um resistant uh voices at the moment yeah yeah the Novel is definitely on my list to read now. And I know when when you wrote the book, of course, it's been a couple of years. Um, and since then, there might be some other novels that came out that could be considered Afropolitan. Many of us are going into the break between semesters. So if you were to offer a reading list, are there any other books that you would recommend? Oh, so many. Uh, yeah, so it's actually been uh, really great to see how how many novels have been published by um, incredibly talented black writers in Germany recently. So there is um, Jackie Thomas, Brüder. Um, then there is uh, Olivia Wenzel's uh, 1017 Angst, which I think uh, will be translated into English. The title will be 1000 Coils of Fear, but I don't know when it will be out. Uh, and then, of course, uh, this year, um, Ada's Raum by uh, Sharon Dodua Otu. So highly recommended novels <laughs> which is already uh translated i know because i saw a, a presentation about that and so yes this is available also for um english speakers <laughs> okay so after talking about the theories and practices of apropolitism uh how would you summarize the main similarities of your examples and what are the differences that stood out to you that make this such a such an interesting concept <laughs> yeah, so um, what makes it interesting is, I think, uh, that um, the, the Afropolitans kind of adapt the Afropolitan practices uh, to the contexts in which they live. Um, and that's uh, yeah why why I find it so important also to to provide lots of descriptions of um, the Berlin context um, and the London context to give people an understanding um, yeah for um, their differences. I mean there are obviously similarities, but um, um, uh, I mean, the, the black population in Germany is much smaller. Uh, we only start uh, to really take uh, our own colonial history seriously now, <laughs> uh, quite late. Um, yeah, so, so I think the context specificity of Afropolitanism is something that makes it so interesting. Um, and... Sorry, I think I forgot the first part of your question. What are the, similar, the similarities between the different Afropolitan practices? Yes, so I think um, in one way or another, um, all of these uh, practices, they try to find... Uh, 
ways in which we can create connections and that also connects so well to what I said said in the beginning that what I'm interested in is to to learn uh, about uh, new ways how we can um, not necessarily overcome discrimination but address it in a way that uh, yeah we actually can talk about um, societal um, hierarchies um, and um, how we can kind of uh, deal with them uh, which currently seems to be so difficult and so I, I think in their own way these um, Afropolitan theories and practices, they they try to um, make suggestions for that. So uh, even if it's sometimes um, yeah difficult to talk about uh, racism, um, that we we have to do it and we have to find ways. Um, yeah, how how to how to do it to create connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the concept itself is very inclusive, it's very productive, um, especially with that creation part, right? The creating something new, and, and that really stood out to me as well throughout the book. Anna, we have taken up a lot of your time, uh, but we do have a traditional last question, and that is, what are you working on right now? <laughs> um, yes, so since... Uh, I wrote this book. Um, I did uh, various smaller projects um, and also outreach projects. Uh, so next month, uh, a book will come out. Um, uh, it's actually an edited volume, Die Postkoloniale Stadtlesen, or Reading the Postcolonial City, but it's in German. Uh, and for that, I uh, was allowed to research two historical figures who played a role in German colonial history, and that's um, one uh, Black German, uh, August Sabak Escher, uh, and also uh, Adelbert von Chamiso. Uh, white uh, German, well, with a French background, <laughs> naturalist who um, went on a world tour and collected uh, botanical uh, examples from all over the world. Um, and, well, um, I'm also working on, which is part of my outreach projects, it's uh, PocoLit, which is an online platform for post-colonial literature. It's bilingual. Um, and with my colleague, uh, Lucy Gassa, um, we want to highlight uh, post-colonial literature in German and English um, for a global readership in an accessible way. And that's, uh, yeah, with that, we uh, usually try to come up with um, event series or um, new projects as part of that. <laughs> Those are fascinating projects and I look forward to checking them out and maybe uh, talking to you again. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. Tschüss and take care. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>